This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, as many people spend freely during this holiday time, you should remember that some of the items you purchase to give as gifts may very well have been made in an impoverished nation in a sweatshop where conditions for the employees are not close to optimal. A new report by Brian Berkey, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Warren School, looks at whether or not these workers are being wrongfully exploited. There are companies that say these relationships don't constitute exploitation since they are providing an option for work and improving the lives of those people in comparison to what that life would be without the work that the company is offering. And Brian joins me here in studio. Great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. I guess let's start with with what spurred this idea in the first place. Well, so uh, there's a, a large kind of literature in philosophy, which is my kind of academic field, on kind of the nature and uh, the wrong of exploitation. So kind of exploitation is a concept that many people think is um, uh, kind of inherently normative. Uh, It's sort of uh, to say that something is exploitative is to say that it's wrongful in some sort of way. Uh, And what we want to know is uh, first, what exactly is this thing that we think is um, generally quite morally problematic and what explains its wrongness? Um, So I wanted to write this paper because I find some of the prominent explanations for uh, the wrong of exploitation, you know, of the sort that we see in sweatshops and so on, uh, unsatisfying. I'm not convinced that they've kind of got the explanation right uh, for why um, exploitation of these kinds is wrong. And so I wanted to kind of offer uh, an alternative account. yeah. So we have this dynamic at play here of many people believing that a lot of these facilities are, are well under standard. Mm. And, and I guess the expectation is of the standards that we have, yeah. say, here in the United States, in comparison to what the company says they are doing by providing an option and making the life better of that person by just having a job in the first place. Exactly. So here's the kind of philosophical puzzle that kind of gets a lot of these discussions going. On the one hand, uh, we think that uh, when a company employs people in one of these facilities uh, where the conditions aren't particularly good, uh, the wages are low, the hours are long, and so on, uh, and the company is kind of making profits off of the backs of these workers who are... um, not treated very well, uh, we think that those workers are being wrongfully exploited. Mm. We think the company is doing something wrong. Uh, On the other hand, when companies open these sorts of facilities, and let me be clear here, um, the cases that are difficult, morally speaking, are cases in which, uh, first, the work really is, on the whole, beneficial for the workers compared mm-hmm. to all of their other alternatives. Uh, there's nothing like forced labor going on. You know, Workers aren't kind of locked in the facility. Uh, they're paid on time. They're paid what they're promised, all of these sorts of things. Now, that doesn't describe all of the facilities that are out there. I mean, right. Some of them don't pay the workers what they're promised. They lock them in and so on. And, and nobody is going to defend uh, – uh, at least nobody in the philosophical debates is going to defend uh, companies that do any of these kinds of things. Uh, but if the workers are paid what they're promised, even if it's relatively little, um, if um, 
uh, uh, you know, they're not deceived about any of the conditions of the job and so on. Uh, and it really does kind of make them better off compared to their existing options. Um, it's difficult to see what could be wrong about a company providing that option to people if we think that the company wouldn't be doing anything wrong by, for example, uh, just keeping all of its jobs in the U.S. or Europe right. or some wealthier place, right? So the intuition that we have about the wrong of exploitation is that the workers are being wronged, right? Yeah. Um, they're being treated in an unacceptable way. But if it's better for them to have the job than for the companies to just kind of ignore them and you know stay operating in, in – uh, wealthier countries, then there's at least kind of something a bit puzzling about the idea that they could be doing something wrong uh, by help by doing something that actually benefits them if they wouldn't be doing anything wrong by doing nothing to help them. But by by the the aspect of even maybe before a company would bring a facility like that into an area, you talk about the fact that I, I guess there's a degree of structural injustice that that is already inherently in play here. Yeah. So this is the line of argument that I want to push uh, in order to defend the view that in at least a lot of the cases that, uh, you know, uh, uh, we as philosophers are sort of interested in, um, these companies really are doing something wrong uh, and in some sense wrongfully exploiting the workers. Um, but the argument uh, depends on um, defending a second claim, which is that uh, these companies are in virtue of kind of benefiting from something like global structural injustice, obligated to um, take steps to benefit poor workers around the, or potential workers around the world yeah. who um, – are disadvantaged as a result of these uh, of these institutions. So, you know, a lot of policies at both the national level and kind of the global level through the WTO and so on, uh, there's a good argument to be made that they systematically benefit uh, multinational corporations, for example, at the expense of um, the worst off people in the world. But a lot of a lot of companies, I think, would say that it, is it their responsibility in the first place? Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah, I think they would deny that um, they are obligated to, uh, for example, you know, accept uh, somewhat lower profit margins or, you know, shift around costs, you know, reduce executive pay and so on uh, in order to, for example, ensure that uh, the lowest paid workers in their supply chains are, say, paid more or, you know, made to work somewhat fewer hours or working conditions are improved uh, and so on. Um, but. Uh, I argue that uh, if we want to maintain, as I think we should, that uh, facilities that we're kind of intuitively inclined to think of as sweatshops really are wrongfully exploitative, uh, we have to think that these companies have uh, positive duties to do things to benefit the global poor. Uh, and this has some controversial implications. So um, one of the most striking, I think, is that uh, on my view – uh, it can actually be wrong for companies to, say, keep operations in wealthier countries when they could provide opportunities to people who are much worse off in uh, poorer parts of the world. So, uh, you know, when companies kind of uh, 
use the fact that they have, uh, you know, say manufacturing facilities in in the U.S. or or in Europe, and you know the workers are paid more and provided with better conditions than. Uh, you know, workers that say other companies employ in Bangladesh or wherever. Yeah. Um, this isn't, on my view, something that you know we should necessarily kind of admire or praise these companies for, um, given that uh, in many cases these companies kind of benefit from uh, these sort of large-scale global injustices that. Um, disadvantage people in poor countries generally much more than people in countries like the United States. You talk in your in your paper about something called the non-worseness claim. Yeah. Which which is what? So the non-worseness claim is a claim that defenders of sweatshops often appeal to uh, in their arguments. And so this is the claim that um, if it's permissible for a company to, say, keep its operations in a country like the U.S., um, and it would be better for, say, a group of workers in Bangladesh for the company to open the facility there uh, and employ them in conditions that we would intuitively think of as wrongfully exploitative. Uh, It actually can't be wrong for the company to do that um, because working in the sweatshop is better or not worse for the workers than um, the company just keeping its operations in the U.S., which uh, most people in the debate kind of assume uh, is morally acceptable. So uh, this is the kind of the claim that I that I challenge. So I think there's something right about the non-worseness principle. There's something really puzzling about the view which most people in the debate seem to accept that it's perfectly fine for a company to say keep all of its jobs in the US um, which does nothing to help people in say Bangladesh um, but wrong for the company to go to Bangladesh employ people um, in a facility that um, you know has at least minimum work standards for working conditions, even though they're not great, uh, pays people what they're told they're going to be paid, pays them on time, doesn't deceive them about anything and so on. It makes them better off than they would be, even though they're still generally quite badly off. Um, It's hard to believe that doing that could be wrong if doing nothing to improve the lives of these people could be okay. But I guess the question is, is how aware are companies of just the the aspect of taking a plant or a factory of some kind to another part of the world. And they are obviously looking at it, I think, in many cases from the perspective of, okay, we can build a, a plant or have a factory in some remote part of the world. We're going to be able to pay the people less. Mm-hmm. We're going to be able to make the same products. And we're going to be able to profit more. But at the same time, they are also providing something. They would mm-hmm. not think about the fact that they are providing something yeah. for the people of that, that territory ever. It would be more about mm-hmm. worrying about the profit in the bottom line. Yeah, so I think that's uh, definitely true, at least in in many, probably most cases. They're not motivated by a concern for the workers. Um, nonetheless, um, they might have good reason to believe that the workers are, in fact, benefiting, right? Um, you know, so the 
defenders of the non-worseness principle will often point to the fact that, uh, you know, the workers themselves seem like pretty systematically to judge that uh, the sweatshop jobs are better than their existing alternatives, which are often, you know, things like subsistence farming in the country or, uh, you know, work in various kind of informal parts of the economy uh, and so on. Um, I mean, it's a sad state of affairs that uh, for so many people working in a sweatshop, uh, is viewed by those people as the best option that's available to them. Uh, and, I mean, the fact that so many people live in those conditions is kind of part of the global structural injustice that I point to that I think generates these strong positive duties on on companies and others. To, but, yeah. but then there's also the element, in, and while it's not necessarily tied into your paper, but it's also the element of the role of the country itself and the government itself mm -hmm. in that location mm -hmm of making sure that there are a minimum set of standards in place so that those workers can benefit and have that job, but again, not at the expense of being overburdened or mm -hmm. locked into yeah. a facility. Right. And, and that's the role that the, that the government can play in this, in this case. Yeah, that's definitely right. So there are certain minimum kinds of regulations that it seems like any government should impose, uh, restrictions on companies deceiving workers, locking them into facilities, not paying them what they're told they're going to be paid, not paying them on time, and so on. Um, with other kinds of policies, things get a little bit more complicated because of the overwhelming power of corporations and the fact that they uh, have a range of options available to them. So uh, think about, for example, a minimum wage, right? Um, one criticism of implementing minimum wages uh, is, well, look, you know, if you if, you know, uh, one country kind of uh, implements a minimum wage and actually kind of enforces it. I mean, in some cases, these things are on the books, but not really enforced. Um, companies are just going to go to another country that doesn't have this minimum wage where they can kind of, uh, you know, pay people less. Right? Uh, to the extent that that's true. Uh, an individual government uh, implementing a minimum wage might actually have counterproductive effects for uh, the workers in that country if the result is, well, companies are just going to pick up and go to a different country that doesn't have that sort of policy. And so this is why I think in addition to uh, holding that governments have responsibilities to do what they can yep. to – um, improve conditions for for workers. Uh, companies also have responsibilities. Um, uh, companies shouldn't just pick up and go wherever it's cheapest in order to keep wages down as low as possible. For example, they should pay um, more than what they're legally required to pay uh, to the extent that they can, um, because uh, at least in part they benefit from this sort of system that uh, that pretty systematically favors their interests. But when you think about uh, the, the scope of, uh, of factories and facilities here in the U.S., there's even concern about a company like Amazon yeah. and how their operations mm -hmm. run and, and concerns by the employees about how they are being treated mm -hmm. on, on a daily basis. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, these kinds of uh, concerns arise uh, even in fairly uh, wealthy countries, and you know, it's definitely true that there are 
legitimate concerns about exploitation uh, in the case of Amazon and other country and other companies that you know, operate uh, employ a lot of people within the U.S. and uh, you know these are things that we need to to take seriously. Also, is it surprising that we would still be seeing these types of issues? Here in the United States in, in in 2019, when you think about how far we have come and how much more of a watch there is, I think, on, on a lot of these issues. Uh, well, I mean, uh, it might be surprising to people, you know, given where we were, you know, say 40, 50 years ago. But, uh, you know, the trends in the last few decades have kind of been toward kind of, uh, you know, um, Fewer regulations on companies, um, growing inequality, um, and you know, uh, more concentrated wealth in the hands of a smaller number of corporations. Uh, you know, Amazon is kind of just yet another example of of this phenomenon. And so, um, from that perspective, it's not surprising that uh, you know companies have the power to. Uh, impose these conditions on workers who often don't have uh, better options available to them. Um, and, you know, as you were describing before, uh, the way that uh, I think many of the decision makers in these companies think about these issues is, you know, primarily in terms of, you know, what's going to maximize profits. And if that, you know, involves working employees really hard for long hours, paying them very little, you know, uh, putting them in conditions that are quite unpleasant. Uh, that's often what they're going to do. Well, he, one of the comments by one of the workers stands out saying, I soon learned that the only difference between is an Amazon warehouse and a third world sweatshop were the robots. Mm -hmm. And that and that speaks volumes yeah. as to what what the standards are mm -hmm. apparently for a company like Amazon mm -hmm. in some of these locations right now. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's right. Um, now, um, you know, the workers at Amazon, I mean, as you know, troubling as these conditions are, are still, uh, you know, even though they're paid very little by U.S. standards, I mean, they make more than, you know, the people in, in Bangladesh who are, you know, making a lot of the clothing that's sometimes sold on Amazon and so on. Um, we should be concerned about all of these things. And, you know, to the extent that we find all of these things troubling, I think that only strengthens my argument that these companies that are so wealthy and so powerful and very much able to kind of improve conditions for workers all over the world uh, in their supply chains, if they uh, decided to do that, really have um, pretty strong moral obligations to do that, uh, even at the expense of, of profits to some extent. But the expectation probably is that right now a company is not going to willingly make those changes mm -hmm. unless they are pressured by yeah. some sort of mm -hmm. government entity that says enough's enough. Mm -hmm. you got to make these changes now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, certain kinds of pressure from the government would be good um, now. Um, that's only going to happen, though, if uh, there's pressure from um, – from us, from the citizenry at large, yeah. to uh, enact policies that will actually require companies to pay people decent wages, provide them better working conditions, uh, and so on. And um, uh, you know that requires certain kinds of commitments, in particular from uh, people who are in a position to uh, make decisions that 
uh, can have an impact, like you know, um, deciding what kinds of products to buy, um, what kinds of products to refrain from buying, and so on. How to vote? Uh, all of these kinds of things matter too. Uh, it, are, are the are the situations in some of these locations? And we mentioned some of the the factories that that Amazon may be uh, involved with. Are they significantly worse than a lot of other locations in the United States? Or is this also in part a bit of a perception issue of what the person may be dealing with mm -hmm. and that expectation that that person believes should be in play for that particular facility? Yeah, this is a good question. So uh, it's not really my area of, uh, of expertise. So I, I don't know um, in much detail um, you know what the differences might be between an Amazon factory and factories operated by by other companies, uh, or the conditions in in other kinds of workplaces. But uh, I do think it's reasonable for uh, people to think that Amazon, in particular, given how big and how profitable it is, um, has a particularly strong responsibility not to subject its employees to these kinds of conditions. So in the philosophical debate about uh, sweatshops and exploitation, um, even uh, the people who think that uh, it can be wrong to employ people and you know pay them low wages and you know work them long hours and so on even if that's better for them uh, than not being employed by that company at all um, tend to think that if a company can't afford to provide higher wages or just would you know be driven out of business if it you know shortened the working day or improved working conditions and so on uh, then, uh, it's widely accepted that that company isn't doing anything wrong. Right. Uh, there's nothing more that they could do, and it's better for the workers to at least have the job than not. But, I mean, companies like Amazon are not in that position, right? Amazon can very much afford to uh, you know, sacrifice some small amount of its, uh, uh, of, of its profits in order to raise wages and you know provide better conditions and so on uh, they are just choosing not to do that they're choosing to prioritize uh, you know maximizing profits and putting resources toward toward other things but going back to your your comment about the reaction of, of the public you go back in time I remember the days when Nike got a yeah. lot of mm -hmm. a lot of blowback from some of the conditions in their facilities mm -hmm. where they were making product Uh what we learned out of that is while there is an uproar, an initial uproar about the company having those types of conditions, you don't see the long-term follow-through mm -hmm. of an economic impact against that company for doing that type of activity. And I think the same thing would probably be said about an Amazon as well. Okay, there's a lot of concern. What's going to happen? And what's the long-term impact? Probably mm -hmm. not a lot, unfortunately. Yeah, so there's a couple of things going on here. I mean, one is just uh, you know sometimes these things you know get a uh, uh, more attention than they usually do because of you know uh, facts about the way the news cycle works, or um, you know uh, there's a particularly egregious thing that happens that gets a lot of attention, and then yeah. you know the company makes some kind of cosmetic changes, or they say they're doing something in response to this thing, and most things stay the same, but people stop paying attention. Um, 
the case with Amazon and the workers in the U.S. might be a little bit different than um, some of the uh, the international cases um, because you know in the international cases um, the people who are uh, being exploited aren't able to, uh, you know, for example, vote in elections sure. in the U.S. Yeah. where, uh, you know, new regulations might be imposed. So, I mean, there's a potential for uh, uh, political action that might actually make a difference in the U.S. that is at least harder uh, on the global level. Um so that's one difference, but um, I, I think generally you're right that a lot of times these things, um, you know, uh, get some attention uh, initially, and then it just kind of fades, and but not much changes. By doing this paper, what is your hope that maybe will be the the grand takeaway, and and maybe be something that that spurs further conversation down the road? Well, so I think the most important upshot of my argument is that. Um, if our concern about the conditions in factories around the world um, is grounded in a concern, as it should be, for the lives and interests of the workers there, uh, then we shouldn't accept a view on which it would be perfectly fine for the companies to just kind of close down all of their operations in impoverished parts of the world and say, you know, um, you know, open factories in the U.S. or sure. something like that. Yeah. Uh, but most of the views in the literature actually imply that uh, there would be nothing wrong with companies doing that. What yeah. they should avoid doing is uh, employing people in the conditions that they are actually employing people around the world. Um, and they can avoid doing that by, uh, you know, just employing people in wealthier parts of the world. Um, I think that's a deep mistake to think that um, that's an acceptable option in a globalized economy in which these multinational corporations benefit from uh, policies and practices that systematically disadvantage impoverished people in other parts of the world. Um, what we should think is that these companies really should be engaging economically with um, the world more broadly and providing opportunities where they can to people who, who really need them, um, they should just be doing them and doing that in non-exploitative ways, in ways that, um, uh, you know, involve treating the people um, right. much better than they than they currently do. Great seeing you. Thank you for coming in, Brian. Thanks a All lot. All the best. Man. Brian Berkey from here at the Wharton School in the University of Pennsylvania. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.